now we will have the final message of this Sabbath day before the feast by Curtis Rightly, entitled Inflection for the Feast. Thank you, Owen. Oops, sorry. A little loud there. <laughs> I am a little loud. I apologize. Uh, startle anyone. Uh, so, it's wonderful to see everyone here. Uh, all looks like 40 of us, uh, which is still, still great. And we kind of expected this to be a light crowd today and understanding that the feast starts in just a couple days and many have decided to... Uh, have a casual stroll down to their locations that they're going to go to. Uh, but uh, I had the sermon this week, and so with it being just a couple days from the Feast of Tabernacles, of course, you know, we're trying to preach in season. I entitled this, really just the basic title, A Reflection for the Feast. And so, kind of playing on what Steve was talking about a little while ago when he opened up his message, I kind of have a little bit of a different uh, take on my first feast. Much of that has to do with because I was in the church from the beginning, and so it's kind of hard to really remember my first Feast of Tabernacles because I grew in it. But I like to say that my first real feast as far as a baptized member, I do remember really well. I'm Growing up as a kid, most many of you... I didn't grow up in the era where I got to go to Big Sandy. I've heard all the stories uh, of those days. But for me, growing up, it was Western Hills and Wagner, of course, Sequoia State Park. Uh, I think they've changed the name of it, but uh, many, many years. But the first feast that I went to after I was baptized was in 2004, and it was actually a Christian Educational Ministries, a CEM feast site in Eureka Springs. They had traditionally had a Florida feast every year, but there was a hurricane that year, and so... They had to move their Florida feast site to Eureka Springs kind of at the last minute. And so I will remember that feast, of course, always, and many others that came after that. Uh, I think there was somewhere around, I want to say, oh, man, maybe close to eight, eight or 900 people at that feast site. Uh, of course, back in those days, it wasn't the 15,000 at Big Sandy or Tucson, Arizona that Steve was talking about, and many of you guys remember that I don't remember, but just heard stories of. Uh, but that was a lot of people, because Western Hills, I think, usually had five, 600, does that sound right? Kind of on average every year, kind of in the 90s, early 90s, uh, when I can really remember it. So I will definitely uh, remember that, you know, that first feast even though I had been going to the feast, I had been to San Antonio, I had been to Western Hills, uh, there's something different uh, uh, w when you go to that first feast of Tabernacles after you are a committed, baptized member of God's church. And it's not just something that's a legacy that was given to you because you grew up in it, but it was a legacy that you embraced and you chose yourself. And so today... Uh, much like Steve, I decided that I'm going to talk about a few things that's related to the Feast of Tabernacles. It's tough because we're all getting ready to go hear a bunch of messages. And I want to just kind of look at this and, and like a, encapsulate kind of one idea that the Feast points to. And we're going to look at that, but we all know that the Holy Days, it's something that's more than just us coming to church 
on a day because God says don't work on that day and you need to come and you need to congregate. But there's a bigger picture at play here. We know that the feast days, the holy days, paint us a picture of what God is doing both in our lives, the church of God, and what he is doing in bringing man to salvation. And it's not something that just affects this church. It has implications for the entire world, for the entire universe. Of course, the church is the mechanism in which God has chosen to do these things through. But we understand the feast days, they are something that have implications for all living humans and that have always lived or ever lived on this entire earth. Now, we're not going to turn there, but we know that Colossians tells us, and many people misunderstand what this passage says and when Paul talks about the feast days of being a shadow of things to come. That's what they are. They're a shadow. They are, they are a rehearsal that points to a reality in something that's going to take place in the future and some of them that have already taken place if we look at some of the earlier feast days of God. But one of the most powerful things about the feasts, the holy days, is that they belong to God. They belong to the creator of all of the universe. Never do you hear, and we see maybe sometimes in the New Testament, when John would say like a feast of the Jews, we know that he's not saying that the Jews own that feast or it's their day and they made it up, but it's just a point of reference to maybe Gentile readers to explain, hey, this is something that is Jewish. Maybe you don't understand it. It's a point of clarification, but we know from the beginning, when God gave his holy days, we look at Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, that God proclaimed, these are my feasts. These are my solemn days. My appointed times. And God has invited all of us to partake in them. He's invited all of us to these feast days to tell us, I want to let you know what I'm up to. I want to let you know what I'm doing. I want to let you know what my plans are. That's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing. But we understand that none of this, none of these days mean anything without Jesus Christ. Because from the very beginning, they always point to Christ. The fulfillment of these days are always Christ-centered. Now, we've all had conversations We've all talked with people before. And we've discussed among ourselves and many people. We talk to them about the feast days and they think, well, isn't that like an old covenant thing? Isn't that something that the Jews did? Isn't that something for Israel? And of course, I don't shame them and, 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 and say, no, you don't know what you're talking about or anything like that. But the funny thing is, knowing the truth, there's nothing more Christian than God's holy days because Christ is at the center of all of them all the way from the beginning we look in the spring holy days the Passover that Passover lamb Christ your lamb has been slaughtered for you for us it always pointed to that lamb without blemish which was Jesus Christ of course the day of Pentecost the, the starting of the church just a few days ago we celebrated and honored and afflicted our souls of the Day of Atonement. That 
day that points to that rich typology of Jesus Christ, our high priest, making atonement for us. All of them point to Christ. All of them point to the reality of what God's doing because of the work that Christ has done on this earth. They've always been Christ-centered, and they have always pointed to Christ, and thus they have always been Christian. Now, as I mentioned, the feast days are nothing without Christ because Christ is the center of them all. But one of the things, and what we're going to look at today, one of the things that the feast days point to, especially this Feast of Tabernacles that's getting ready to begin, is the glorious liberty of God and His plan for mankind's true freedom. You see, we understand that there is a reality living on this earth as human beings and that there is a bondage that this world is in. And centered in that bondage, bondage is sin, blindness, oppression. And Jesus talks about some of these things in Luke, the fourth chapter, starting in verse 16. And I'm just going to kind of read through this because that, this is what we're getting at and getting into today. Jesus, in verse 16 of Luke's fourth chapter, says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. We understand that Jesus' hometown is Nazareth. He's known as Jesus as Nazareth. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set, up at to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus is getting this wording. He's in Isaiah, the 61st chapter, reading verses 1 and 2. In verse 20, of Luke 4, he says, Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were wanting to know, what is this man? He just came up and read this. What is he going to say about what he just read? What is he going to say about this passage here in Isaiah? And he began, in verse 20, 21, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him. And marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Remember, he's in Nazareth. He's in his hometown. People probably knew Jesus. He probably grew up going here. It says that this was his custom, right? This was his custom to go into the synagogue, to, to read in the synagogue. Well, it didn't say necessarily it was his custom to read, but it was his custom to go into the synagogue like most Jews would during this time. Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, surely I said to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel and in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the, the Syrian. 
So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their inner or, or which their uh, city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff then passing through the midst of them he went his way and as i already mentioned jesus is here at his hometown here in nazareth and it says that it was his habit to go in to the city now there's five points of liberty that I want to go through here today. Five points of liberty that Jesus talks about in reading Isaiah the 61st chapter. The first one, Jesus had a great focus on the poor. He says that he came to proclaim the good news to the poor. Now when we read this and we read everything that Jesus had to say, both it has to it applies both in a physical way as well as in a spiritual way. Now in the first century, many people in the first century in Palestine, they were poor. Poor people just abounded. They were everywhere. Oftentimes many people were mistreated, they were forgotten, and they were despised. This Greek word for poor is actually the word for beggar. It's interesting is because Jesus oftentimes talks about the poor in another way. The spiritually poor. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 3. Let's go there real quick. Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 3. Jesus says this. The first thing he says, one of the very beginning things he says in the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. We know what the Beatitudes is. And he says... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, all of us here know what it's like to be poor in spirit. Because we, at one point in time, were without Christ. Even if at a very young age we accepted Christ, we understand theologically that we weren't just born as baptized people and committed to Christ. It wasn't something that we just, you know, we were born into. We might have been born into the faith by means of our family teaching us what the scriptures have to say. But we weren't automatically just imputed into God's or to Christ's body. So we have all been poor in spirit. No matter how financially well off we are, we have all spiritually been poor. A good illustration is found in Mark, the 10th chapter. Let's go there real quick. We're going to read verse 17 through 22. Much like Steve, none of the things that I'm saying today is new as far as the passages. That, I'm not going to any unique passages that maybe we haven't went over many times before. But to highlight this idea of poor in spirit, Jesus talks oftentimes about this idea of treasures treasures. In Mark the 10th chapter verse 17, Jesus has this situation where in verse 17 it says, now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not, be, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. 
Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so there's many things that we can get from this. But what we see here is that this man was obviously wealthy. He had possessions, maybe he had some land. But Jesus was like, even though you're wealthy, and even though that you do these things physically, right? Keep the commandments. And we understand keeping the commandments physically is important. But we want to have the law and the commandments in our hearts, and that's what drives us to keep them physically. Not just say, well, I don't steal, I don't commit adultery, I honor my father and mother, so I'm good. I should get in. Jesus says, look, even though you have all of these possessions, basically, you're still poor in spirit. You might have all of these treasures, and I touched a little upon this just the other day, on the Day of Atonement when I spoke, and I talked about the food that endures. No matter what we have in this life, it's all going to go away at some point. And the treasures of heaven is what we need to focus on. And it almost seems as if this man's physical wealth made him confident in himself as if these treasures, they kind of sustain me. I am wealthy and I keep these commandments. I'm good. In Mark, the 10th chapter, verse 22, he says, But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus told this man what he could do to have treasures in heaven. What must I do? Jesus said, Do this, do this, do this, do this. Sell your goods, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. And this man was very sorrowful. Now, that's not a prescription for all of us. Jesus is not saying, if you want to follow me, you need to sell everything you have. But in, in this instance, what Jesus is getting at is that this man relied more on his material things that he had than he did God. Than he did God. What's interesting is that right before this story, and Matthew, or Mark, rather, not Matthew, the 10th chapter, verse 15, the passage of the little children coming to Jesus, or not coming to Jesus, but uh, not the little children coming to Jesus per se, but what Jesus says about little children in verse 15 of Mark 10. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. I find that interesting. Because it's kind of a contrast. This rich man that seems to have faith in himself, faith in his treasures, faith in the things that he, that he has, as well as, well, I'm good because I keep the commandments. But Jesus, right before this, he's talking about little children and faith of little children. And we understand that little children live their life completely, 100% reliant upon those who take care of them. They can't, they're not self-sufficient. They don't know how to go out and work, make money, turn it into food, turn it into the necessities of life. They're completely dependent upon their children. And, or their uh, parents, rather. And children oftentimes completely have faith that mom and dad, they're going to take care of me. Now, of course, we know that there are situations where maybe someone struggles. But in general, we know that children, they just have faith that who is their caretaker is going to take care of them. That their next meal is going to be there. That they're going to have clothing. It's not even a question and that's the faith that Jesus 
was wanting this man to have. And this is where the treasures of heaven are going to come from. Having faith like that. And so as we look at this, proclaim good news to the poor, both physically as well as spiritually, that's one of the things that Jesus is hitting at here in this. The second thing that he hits at is proclaim liberty to the captives. Again, this also includes the physical and the spiritual. We know that his audience would have understand what it's like to be in physical captivity. This is the nation of Israel, or at least not all of Israel, but Jews. They understood that their current situation was that they were under the auspices of Rome. They had heard the stories about Israel, how they had been a united kingdom at one point, how they had been sovereign in their own right, and that in their history, unfortunately what took place is that they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and eventually all the way down into the Romans. And so they would have understood what it meant to be in captivity. But it's interesting because the Greek word for captive or captivity or captives is aphesis. And it's translated as remission three other times in Luke referring to the remission of sins. You see, we know from other scriptures and what Paul talks about, what Jesus himself talks about, that sin is one of the greatest captivators of all. No greater slaveholder than sin. There really isn't. And we know that society testifies of this. We can look at just the world. The scriptures uses the words like lust of the flesh, carnality, and we see it abound. We see it completely abound. And Jesus is proclaiming liberty to the captives. And all of us understand what it means to be captive because we all understand the theology of what it means to be dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. The third thing is to proclaim sight to the blind. Of course, Jesus physically, he went around and he healed people who were blind. We know he brought sight back all throughout his ministry. But Jesus also focused on the spiritual blind. Now, if you think about it, both previous elements, captivity and poor, oftentimes, you can say, are caused by spiritual blindness. I mean, we look at the ancient Israelites, right? All right? Their poorness in spirit, as well as their spiritual, uh, their captivity, their blindness, caused them to just not understand that even though God was over and over and over trying to plead with them to turn back to the covenant, resulted in going into captivity. Spiritual blindness is a serious thing. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 14, Paul says this, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is an important element to understand in this world. Spiritual blindness is one of Satan's most magnificent tools in keeping people from understanding God's truth and in turn accepting them. And we see this in our government. We see this in universities, intellectuals. They all think that they have it figured out, right? We don't need God. God has nothing to do with the creation of this universe. We don't need God when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to making policies. We don't need God when it comes to making, deciding, and, and judging what truth is or what the standard for truth should be. All of it's because of spiritual blindness, which results in captivity, captivity, captivity to sin, 
as well as a continual life of being spiritually and spiritually poor. The fourth thing, proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. This includes healing the sick, casting out demons, forgiving sins. We all know that Jesus did all of these things in his ministry. But we can also notice that how the previous three descriptions are a form of oppression. Poverty, bondage, blindness, all of them are a form of oppression. And keeping with the spiritual side, we know that spiritual oppression is real. It's not hard to understand, in, at least from my perspective, that there are real demonic forces in this world. I mean, the things that I see human beings, or I don't see it, but I hear about it, you, you just read on the news, you know, the atrocities that humans can commit against other humans. There's no other explanation other than that there are real demonic forces in this world. And we know that they are. And we know that they were something that, were, that was present in Jesus' day. We can just look at Acts, the 10th chapter, verse 38, where it says, talking about, you know, Peter's talking about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and helping all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And, of course, I'm not giving an excuse to people for doing horrible, evil things as, well, they couldn't help it because they were under the, impression, the oppression of, of Satan. No way, shape, or form am I trying to give an excuse to people who who commit atrocities. But we do know that the demonic forces mixed with the lust of the flesh, the carnality of human beings, is a potent and dangerous and evil mixture. The fifth thing, proclaim the liberty of the, of the Lord's favor. Proclaim the liberty of the year of the Lord's favor. And this is allusion to the year of Jubilee and Maybe it's been a while since you've read Leviticus, the 25th chapter. It talks about the, the year of Jubilee. But Leviticus, the 25th chapter, verse 10, Israel was to count seven times seven years and come to the 49th year where they would blow the trumpet on the Day of Atonement of that 49th year to usher in the year of Jubilee in the incoming 50th year. And during this time, this year was a year of liberty, a year to release people from their debts, give back their possessions, and also to allow the land to rest as a sabbatical year. Of course, that land would lay fallow as well every seven years in that four or 50-year cycle or 49-year cycle. But it's interesting that when we read this, Jesus is coming into the synagogue and he's teaching people, or he's reading this passage in Isaiah, and he's saying that today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But we also know that Jesus didn't usher in the kingdom of God on earth. Now he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says that, you know, talks about, I've come to release the captives, the oppressed, the poor in spirit, the blind. And so Jesus, it's, it, we, we know that the kingdom is a future thing, a future reality. But at the same time, there's also a present element to the kingdom. Because many of the things that Jesus was doing, the kingdom of God has come upon you. He would heal somebody. And you're thinking, well, well, I thought that this is a future thing. What about the millennium? What about when he comes back? I thought that's when the kingdom comes. And we understand that there's some 
different theologies or different beliefs out there that we're in the kingdom of God right now. But I think what Jesus is getting at is that the kingdom of God, the characteristic, the nature of it, did in fact come upon those that came into witness of Jesus and his works. That he gave them a foretaste of what the kingdom was all about. And the thing is, is that we are an understanding that the kingdom is something in the future. But there's a present element in that we are to live by kingdom standards now. That the kingdom of God is at hand, and it is. It's at hand at any time. In the blink of an eye, our life can be taken away. And the next moment that we will remember will be the kingdom. Now what's significant also about this is that if you go to Isaiah, the 61st chapter, you read verse 1 and 2. Jesus reads all, pretty much reads all of that except for the very last part of verse 2 in Isaiah 61. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, we heard that, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. He doesn't read that part, the day of vengeance. Now why I think that's significant is because I think it demonstrates that Jesus understood that there was two phases to his coming. There's a first phase where he's ushering in something, where he's giving people a foretaste. He's, he's allowing people to see kind of the nature, the characteristics, the, the point of what the kingdom's going to be all about. But there will come a future time where that second part of verse 2 in Isaiah, the 61st chapter, will take place. These things, of course, all of these elements that we see have ultimate fulfillment in the kingdom. That's what the kingdom is about. We're going to go and hear about the Feast of Tabernacles and about it points to God's uh, earthly reign and the kingdom of God being ushered in on this earth. But it all has to do with liberty in which Jesus will have and bring with him in this kingdom. And we living, we know that we groan for that to happen. We eagerly wait. The scriptures tell us, let's go to Romans 8th chapter. Paul tells us that we, we groan within ourselves. We see the things that happen. We see the hurt. We see the pain in this world. We see the evil in this world. And we groan for us to be rescued from it. Not to be rescued from it in, in the sense that, hey, just take us away. Let the world burn itself up and just go to, you know what, in a handbasket. But no. Come and change this world. Bring your kingdom. Bring righteousness with you. Verse 19 of Romans 8 chapter. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruit, uh, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. I don't know about you, but I completely understand what Paul says on that. I mean, when we see these things as Spirit-filled Christians, I've felt that groaning, that wanting, that eager waiting for that adoption 
for the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it in perseverance. And this is what the feast points to. We are to eagerly keep the feast because we all groan. And we all desperately desire for the unfolding of God's plan of fulfillment where he will bring liberty to this earth. He will bring spiritual sight, righteousness, take away the oppression, the oppression that, that uh, unrighteous governments have on people, the oppression that sin places on people. And of course, we understand that there will have to be an acceptance to that. We understand that people will have to accept his lordship, repent for that to happen. But we know that all of this will be fulfilled in God's kingdom. We are to join with God because we believe in God. And we trust in what he has said. And, as we, and we trust in what he has said as if it has already happened. Because we know and we have confidence that when God says he will do something, he does it. And it's as good as if he already did do it. That's how confident we can be in God's promises. Acts the third chapter, verse 21 we see in this passage, whom, talking about Jesus, heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. There is a restoration of all things that are going to come. A restitution where Christ will restore and heal this world. With his righteousness, with his sovereign hand, and all of us are invited to come to the feast and to partake in it and to learn about that reality that is going to come. So, I'm going to skip the last passage that I was going to read, Psalm the 96, 96 verse 13. And I'm just going to ask us, how can this challenge us? As we are two days, less than two days, a little bit more than 24 hours to the feast begins. How can this challenge us? How can these words? And there's so many things that we can read to try to get ready for the feast. And there's so many sermons that are going to be given. But one of the things that I think that it can do is that as we keep the feast, for all of us to remember that the things that Jesus has done in our lives is doing now and will do. And remember the liberty that we have in Christ. Regardless of what happens to us right now, the liberty that we've been given. The oppression that we were in when we were dead in our trespasses and in sin. And we know that Jesus didn't just come for the people who didn't have problems, but he came for all of us. All of us had problems. But we know that this world, it seems to be rapidly having more problems. And I'm not just talking about more war and more corrupt governments. But we see over the landscape, we see humans in general more health issues, more mental health problems, depressions, suicide rates that seem to be escalating. A hurting world. Jesus is coming for that hurting world. You know, he, he oftentimes would go to the people who is least expected for someone who's supposed to be righteous to go to, right? He'd go to the brokenhearted. He'd go to the, the lepers the sick, women, children, people that kind of, you know, society put down or thought that they were lower 
And Jesus would oftentimes go to them. That was his nature. And the funny thing is, is that when we see him do that, we see him do it, and it's kind of just a literal situation that we're looking at, and we're thinking it's interesting. But we're kind of like right there. If we think of us in the state in which we were before we were baptized, all of us were like those lepers. We're like those brokenhearted, even if we didn't realize it, because inside, spiritually, we were inept. We weren't clean. We were like dirty lepers. We were like, you know, individuals that were lost inside. And Jesus came to, to, to you and me. Let us remember what God has pictured, which this feast points to, and how he has proclaimed it all, and invited all of us to partake in it. He's invited us. It's an invitation. It's a commandment, of course, where to keep it. It's not a, hey, I'm good this year. It's a commandment. But it's an invitation. It's an opening the door to what he's up to and what he's doing. Let us keep this feast with joy and gladness while always reflecting and meditating on the glorious plan he has for us that will be a reality someday. And let us never forget that these things are only possible through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in which this feast completely centers upon.